This week on Geek Explained, Dark Crisis is upon us. To celebrate this momentous occasion, I'm looking back on almost four decades of comics history and ranking every DC crisis from worst to best. Welcome back to Geek Explained. I'm your host, Eric Azana, and today's episode is your official Dark Crisis pregame. If you have been living under a rock, if you haven't been going to your LCS, if you have not been keeping up with DC Comics recently, you may not be in the know, but Dark Crisis number one drops this week week. In fact, as you are listening to this, Dark Crisis number one is available right now. Go check it out. It is the latest in a long string of DC Comics crises, and that got me thinking. That got me reminiscing on the history of the word crisis as it pertains to DC Comics, and so this episode is going to see me rank every single crisis from DC Comics from worst to best. We've got 10, count them, 10 crises. I know, I was surprised too, but we've got 10 crises to talk about. I'm going to go from worst to best, from 10 to 1, ranking them all, and I cannot wait to share this list with you. This was a very difficult list to put together. I wasn't sure how everything was going to rank. I knew where I was going to play certain uh, certain events, but... I think I've got a definitive list. And of course, if you would like to share your own list, feel free to email me, geeksplained at gmail.com, or go on Twitter. Let me know at geeksplainedpod, that's at geeksplainedpod, how you would rank every crisis, and we'll have a chat about it. I love having these kind of conversations with you all, and I cannot wait to see what your lists look like. Also, of course, we have this week's Comics Countdown, where I'll chat you up about all the other comics you should be picking up this week alongside Dark Crisis number one, so stay tuned for that after the jump. But, without further ado, let's go ahead and dive in to this week's main event, the main course, the entree, if you will, as I rank every DC crisis from worst to best. Worlds will live, worlds will die, and nothing will ever be the same. In 1985, those words heralded a story that would change the landscape of the DC Universe forever. Crisis on Infinite Earths. A titanic crossover encompassing the entire DCU that changed the landscape for every single hero that had come before and set a precedent for every hero that would come after. And almost 40 years later, we are now on the dawn of another crisis, the Dark Crisis. This week, in fact, as you're listening to this, 
right now. Dark Crisis number one is hitting shelves, and it is waiting for you to pick it up, whether you get it at your LCS, whether you buy it digitally. Dark Crisis is upon us, and it got me thinking about the history of the word crisis when it comes to DC Comics. A crisis is a monumental event that shifts the course of the DC universe. And there's been a few of them, quite a few of them actually. The DC Comics branding of Crisis has taken on an identity all its own. And it got me thinking, what are the best titles to ever hold the moniker of Crisis? Well, in this week's podcast episode, I am going to be going through all 10, count them, 10 crises in the DC universe and ranking them from worst to best. Now, a couple disclaimers here. No, not all of these titles have the word crisis in them. But I think that's something that is really cool about this concept, because Crisis isn't really so much as a title as it is a state of mind. My California is showing. But these titles all, in one way or another, shifted the course of the DCU and set it on a path towards the very next crisis. Each one of these, in their own way, set the stage for the crisis that would come after. So no, not all of these books have the word crisis in them, but all of them feel crisis level. Whether it's threatening the DC universe, or it's threatening our heroes where they live. It's a tough list to put together. We're talking about, again, almost 40 years, almost four decades of comics. And ranking them from worst to best at certain points was very difficult and at other points was very easy. So let's get into this. Without further ado, we're going to be ranking them from worst to best from 10 to 1. And there are a couple things that I'm going to be talking about. I'm going to be talking about what each crisis did well things that the crisis could have improved on, the aftermath, the effects of each crisis, and the one signifier that has been given by DC Editorial. Does a Flash die in this crisis? It happens less than you think. (laughs) So let's go ahead and dive into this. And of course, if you are interested in letting me know what your list is, if you would like to take my list and move them around, shift them. If you completely disagree, if your thoughts align with me, feel free to reach out at Pod on social media, geeksplained at gmail.com through email. Let's chat. Let's talk some crisis because we're going to be talking crisis for the rest of the year if Dark Crisis has anything to say about it. But starting off at number 10, we have, for me, the worst crisis, which is Death Metal. From 2020, written by Scott Snyder, art by Greg Capullo, this is known as the Anti-Crisis. And the synopsis for the event goes like this. When the Earth is enveloped by the dark multiverse, the Justice League is at the mercy of the Batman who laughs, who is reborn as the Darkest Knight. 
Humanity struggles to survive in a hellish landscape twisted beyond recognition, and Wonder Woman, Batman, and Superman are trapped in nightmare worlds within the dark multiverse. It all comes down to The Darkest Night versus Wonder Woman, in the most metalist DC event of all time, paving the way for the future of the DC universe. And even though the title had this moniker of the Antichrisis, for me, this was the burnout crisis. Uh, 2020 was a tough year for a lot of reasons, but the biggest reason for me was comic event excess. It's something that we've been struggling with for a very long time. The idea that, all right, we have this big, you know, earth-shattering company-wide event And two weeks later, we have another big, earth-shattering company-wide event, and none of them feel special anymore. And death metal really is the epitome of that concept, of that burnout. Uh, This event doubled down on the worst parts of its previous event, which we will get to. And even though it involved the entire DCU, which a good crisis should... It didn't feel special. Other books were still going on around this. The cool thing about stuff like the other crises that we'll talk about on this list is that they halted the DCU for just a moment. It didn't have to be a very long time. It didn't have to, you know, fundamentally cancel books like an Age of Apocalypse. But it didn't feel like anything was going on. This felt like a side story to the main stuff that was going on in the DC universe. And even though for me personally, 2020 was a tough year for reasons outside of comic books, this wasn't the comic event that I think we needed at the time, which sucks. And why for me, it's the worst crisis. Uh, In my In my books, for my money, it's Snyder and Cupullo's worst story, which sucks because I think that team, that duo, has such a large amount of goodwill with both me and many comic book fans that this kind of soured me on it. They they were saying, Snyder and Cupullo were, that this was going to be their last DC book for a good while. And I was kind of like, at, at the end of this, yeah, good. I'm kind of excited about that because you guys feel like we're just tr- retreading stuff and I don't, you know, I don't necessarily need any more of this right now. I'm sure, you know, they'll come back five years from now and it's going to be a new golden age for DC Comics. But at this point in time, I was ready for Snyder and Capullo to move on to other things. And the biggest thing about this uh about this story that is kind of a cardinal sin for me when it comes to big events is that the best parts of this event were the tie-ins. They were the tie-ins. We're talking ultimatum levels of bad, where the tie-ins were better than the main event, which was, of course, Death Metal. The three stories that I want to highlight, uh, Secret Origin. This was a tie-in, I believe it was just a one-issue tie-in that featured Superboy Prime, giving him the ending that he deserved, giving him the ending to that character so that we never have to see him again, which I kind of dig. Uh, Superboy Prime, you know, he's done a lot of terrible things, but every Superman deserves a happy ending, so... That's what I got to say about that. Uh, Last Stories of the DC Universe was really good. It was an anthology book that was the calm before the storm, essentially before the final issue. 
and it featured some really great stories. We had Wally post Heroes in Crisis showing up and reuniting with his Teen Titans pals. We saw the Bat Family coming together again. It was just a great, great book. And the send off to this previous era of DC that I think it should have been. And then, of course, the best one of the bunch, Speed Metal. Speed Metal was a two part tie in that focused on the Flash family, gave them some god awful redesigns, but ultimately put Wally West back in his classic flash suit and i will always 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 thank this book for that but other than that it there wasn't really a lot to speak of these three books just by themselves not to mention the other tie-in books completely overshadowed anything that was going on with death metal and it was a struggle to get through at times and for no more reason than the Batman Who Laughs. If I never have to read another Batman Who Laughs story in my entire life, it will be too soon. Because this is the worst creation of DC Comics in the last 10 years. And I don't say that lightly. We've had some bad stuff. But The Batman Who Laughs was a cool concept for one story. And then he became the really overdrawn overexposed concept in every story all of a sudden we went from oh this is a cool idea for a character to he's the main villain of every single book going on at all times and it just it sucked and him developing into this dr manhattan style darkest night the batman the batman hatton who laughs and just it it was too much it was too much um he over he was overgrown, he was overblown, and I just, I didn't need more of that. However, I will say one positive of this, Wonder Woman saves the multiverse, which rules. Uh, Wonder Woman had been kind of spinning her wheels for a little bit at this point in DC Comics and giving her that grand stage to be like, no, she's going to save the multiverse, and then she's going to go away for a little bit. We're going to see her go off and do some things in the God Sphere while potentially other characters from the wonder family are able to sounds like a corporate thing for like wonder bread the wonder family coming to a walmart near you um the the wonder family would be able to step up in the same way that you know the death of superman allowed the superman family to expand but overall that didn't really end up happening but it was cool to see wonder woman kind of take the main stage and i really dug that in the aftermath of this story Worlds lived, worlds died, and the whole multiverse, not just the universe, the whole multiverse was rebooted. We got some stakes. This, just like many uh, DC crises, did alter the course of the DC universe. First off, Wonder Woman reset the DCU. We're talking the main world, we're talking the multiverse, we're talking the omniverse, which was under threat as well. Out of this, we also got Future State, which was surprisingly really enjoyable for a few books and a couple months. We got the Infinite Frontier, which feels slightly undercut by literally everything that came after it being announced as the Infinite Frontier. Uh, Wally West becomes The Flash. Again, following the events of Death Metal, he becomes the mainline Flash, which everyone, including myself, was super excited about. 
And it echoed the first, you know, the Crisis on Infinite Earths where Wally West becomes the Flash. And it ultimately began the road to where we are now, to Dark Crisis. You can trace a line from Death Metal to Future State to Infinite Frontier to the Justice what is it the 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 justice multiversal justice league uh justice incarnate to right now dark crisis justice league 75 and on into what we're at right now and does it answer the question does a flash die yes all of them do but then no because they're all brought back (laughs) So just like Death Metal itself, it really couldn't make up its mind on what it wanted to be, and ultimately that's why it is the worst crisis for me. Moving on to number nine, this is a very uh, hotly debated topic. Number nine, I have Heroes in Crisis from 2018. This is written by Tom King with art by Clayman and Mitch Jarrods, and this is the controversial crisis. The synopsis goes like this. Welcome to Sanctuary, an ultra-secret hospital for superheroes who have been traumatized by crime-fighting and cosmic combat. But something goes inexplicably wrong when many patients wind up dead, with two well-known operators as the prime suspects, Harley Quinn and Booster Gold. It's up to the DC trinity of Superman, Wonder Woman, and Batman to investigate, but can they get the job done in the face of overwhelming opposition? Now hear me out here. Because a lot of people, because this is a story that people did not like, will immediately disqualify this, saying, it's not a crisis, it's not a crisis. has the title, so it is on the board. It is available, right? And honestly, when this book was announced, it had all the potential in the world. All the potential in the DC Universe, in fact, to be a wonderful story. A superhero story that focuses on mental health coupled with a murder mystery, coupled with bringing back together my boys, Booster Gold and Blue Beetle, like, this was shaping up to be a an all-timer when it comes to the story. And I, you know, I liked it. I liked it. I have done an entire episode on this book, in fact. You can go back in the archives. There's a Spotlight episode on this, part of my Tom King series, where every Spotlight I do, I have to do a kooky clever intro to it and if you want my full thoughts on the book go to that episode but I really wished that this could have been what I thought this book was going to be in my head right having this story be as polarizing as it is knocks it down quite a bit and like I said I liked the story I actually found a lot of value in the story but when stacked up against a lot of the other crises on this list there's no other place that could this could really be for me personally now i talked about i said the word polarizing and this book is as polarizing a comic as you were ever find there are people who love this comic and there are people who hate this comic there are people who say this is the worst comic they've ever read and i again I fall in the middle, though I fall a little bit closer to loving the comic than completely hating it. Now, this book did have several problems. Uh, Character assassination, in some terms figuratively, in some terms literally. They killed a bunch of people. A bunch of people who were getting help for their mental duress at this facility were just killed. 
off panel with no pomp or circumstance and it was tragic especially for characters that people absolutely loved also this book dealt with some delays and some changes both to the actual book as well as having to bring on a new art team clay man is one of the most talented artists that i have ever seen he's also terrible at fitting guidelines and it's frustrating because just like in Batcat, which I have talked about on the podcast before, the art changeover, you feel it. Luckily, Mitch Jared steps in to fill in the issues that Clayman could not and absolutely knocks it out of the park. Mitch Jared's is on the same level for me personally as Clayman is. And Tom King continues to work with the best artists in the biz. But overall, it makes the book feel uneven. And... Speaking of uneven, the treatment of one Wally West. The biggest issue with this book is the Wally West problem, which is, as I said before, the character assassination of Wally West. Wally West was brought back in DC Rebirth number zero or number one to bring hope back into the DCU. And from there, from him coming back, he has just been shit on constantly from DC Rebirth number one up till Heroes in Crisis. He was killed. He was given a pacemaker. He was handicapped. He was shunted off to the side. He was driven crazy. He was driven into jealousy. And it didn't feel like anyone knew what they wanted to do with this character. It's like, yeah, we brought him back and we don't really know what we want to do with this toy so we're just not going to play him or we're going to mistreat him and it was incredibly frustrating incredibly frustrating i cannot tell you how angry i was at the treatment of wally west up till this point and to be honest with you this was the only story you could have told with wally west i know that sounds strange but with everything that had gone on with this character, all the mistreatment he had been given in DC up to this point, this was a logical conclusion. And I think Tom King saw that. He's talked in interviews about how much he loves Wally West. And the fact of the matter is, mental health is a serious issue. And maybe it's because I've struggled with mental health. Maybe it's because I have obviously not dealt with the severity of the stuff that Wally West has dealt with, but had a lot of those same thoughts that Wally West has had in this story, it rang true for me. The stuff that happened and the reasoning and what he did. Do I agree with him, you know, trying to cover up a murder? Probably not. But I do think that there is a certain amount of seeing these characters as human beings, which literally everyone is like, oh, I want more realism in my comics. I, I don't want these characters to be silly, Silver Age goofiness. Okay, so we're going to make them confront real-world problems. Oh, no, it's too real. I don't like it. Like, that was the conversation. That's what happened, period. And, again, this series does have serious flaws. I will openly admit that. However, this story did present the first big, you know, confrontation for the DCU when it came to its characters on, yeah, we need to fix our mental health problems. We need to deal with this. 
and they just didn't, which sucks. But in the aftermath of the story, we got to see Wally West elevated into a multiversal journeyman through the Flash Forward series and on into death metal and into the current status quo that he has today. Uh, in the aftermath of this, we also got, unfortunately, the deaths of numerous characters, including Roy Harper, Poison Ivy, Lagoon Boy, Gnark, and others. However, Poison Ivy was revived, thankfully, in a brand new green form that matches closer to her Arkham Games look. And we got a really sweet Harley and Ivy miniseries out of this, which was nice. Um, later on, thankfully, the, the thing that I will always, I think, uh, credit give credit to and thank Joshua Williamson for, Eobard Thawne was revealed as the culprit that instigated the whole Speed Force storm. This was revealed in Flash number 761, near the end of Williamson's run on the Flash. And people can say it was other stuff. I don't give a shit. That is the canon for me. Eobard Thawne is the worst. And of course, he would try to corrupt the most hopeful character. I'm just going to say it. That's what it is. And this story ultimately led to death metal. So it fills that crisis... Uh, criteria where every crisis plants the seeds for the next one. This one led the now jaded and dishonored Wally West into discovering all of the bad shit that was going on in the dark multiverse and set us up for death metal. Now, does a Flash die in Heroes in Crisis? Technically, yes. But also, no. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm trying to be spoiler light in case you haven't read these crises yet, but I do think that uh, it is it is worth noting that obviously Wally West was counted among the victims in issue one, and yet he is alive at the end of this. So I think you can you can jump to conclusions there. But ultimately, this book had a lot of potential, but just didn't capitalize on it so that is why it's at number nine at number eight this is a special shout out to good brother and friend of the podcast matt draper who in our discussions mentioned this as a crisis this is a this is a book that i didn't necessarily think about as a as an official crisis but the more i looked into it and the more i thought about it it absolutely sets up a lot of stuff that leads us to the next crisis. And that's Blackest Night from 2009, written by Jeff Johns, art by Ivan Race. And this is The Secret Crisis. The synopsis goes like this. As the war between the different cores rage, rages on, the prophecy of the Blackest Night descends on the DC Universe. Now, Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps lead DC's champions into battle to save the universe from an army of Black Lanterns, made up of the DCU's deceased heroes and villains. Now, this was officially the last crisis of the old 52, and provided the conclusion to the Jeff Johns' Green Lantern trilogy, that being Rebirth, Sinestro Corps War, and then Blackest Night. What this book did was it reset the board for the DCU following the events of Final Crisis. And just like every good crisis, it involves the entire DCU. Every single book had a tie-in, was involved, had the ramifications of this felt in it. 
And this all revolved around the idea of what's old is new again. This is DC's Night of the Living Dead and gave us the debut of both Black Lanterns as well as White Lanterns leading into Brightest Day and whatnot. Um, This book is really fascinating because if you look at it as just an event, it's just an event. If you look at it as a crisis, it absolutely fills all of the criteria of being a crisis. We've got previous references of past crises. We have references to the most recent crisis that just happened and kind of propels the story forward for characters coming out of that crisis. This is also, and I think this is absolutely batshit crazy to think about, the first time that Barry Allen and Hal Jordan get to team up since Barry Allen's death in Crisis on Infinite Earths. That's wild. The two of them, the whole Brave and the Bold deal, that's them. They were they kicked off the modern conception of the Flash and Green Lantern friendship. And, I mean, they had been unable to fulfill that role for over 20 years. And so this allowed them to get back together, and both of those characters would be involved in the next crisis that would hit the DC Universe. More on that later. Uh, This book is all kinds of batshit crazy. We got the returns of certain dead characters. We got crazy looking designs, which were all done masterfully by Ivan Race. And it was just a fun book. Is it my favorite? No, not especially. Is it, you know, one of the Green Lantern books that I recommend to people? No, not especially. But as a story... It is popcorn blockbuster cinema, and that's more or less what people look to or what generally people think of when they think of DC's crises. On the aftermath of this story, we got Brightest Day, the direct follow-up, dealing with the revival of several heroes and villains, including these 12 characters, Martian Manhunter, Maxwell Lord, Deadman... Hawk Girl, Hawk Man, Aquaman, Eobard Thawne, Jade, Hawk, Ronnie Raymond, Osiris, and our boy Captain Boomerang. Uh, this story actually directly leads to the events of Flashpoint which is the next crisis that would happen in the DC universe. Um, In the aftermath of this as well, Batman's corpse, which is utilized to haunting effect, uh, is revealed to be fake, which sets Tim Drake Red Robin on a globe-trotting adventure in one of the best comics ever. Red Robin, it's wonderful. Go read it. And it also launched a million alternate costumes and action figures. So if nothing else, Blackest Night has had the impact that many crises do have as well. Now, does a Flash die in Blackest Night? Technically, no. But sort of, okay? Because at a certain point, all of the DC heroes and villains that have previously died are turned into Black Lanterns for all intents and purposes, killing them again. And one of those characters is Bart Allen, who at the time was Kid Flash and was previously a Flash. So I'm counting it, sort of, on technicalities. Blackest Night is a great story that people like to revisit, 
But ultimately, it's not something that jumps out to me as a crisis, which is why it ranks so low. At number seven, we have a much more uh, personal crisis. This is Identity Crisis from 2004. Brad Meltzer writing Rags Morales on Art. This is the problematic crisis. And the synopsis goes like this. When Sue Dibney, wife of the elongated man, is murdered in her own home, the superhero community is devastated. They come together in mourning, hold their loved ones closer, and immediately begin a worldwide search to find her killer. But a handful of heroes think they already know who murdered Sue Dibney. Years ago, to protect Sue and others like her from supervillains, Green Arrow, Hawkman, Black Canary, the Atom, and Zatanna crossed a line. Now, their long-buried secret will break the superhero community apart. Now, this is the most personal crisis of any of these on the list. Um, this story is based around the threat our loved ones face, and it puts a spotlight on something that isn't always talked about in superhero comics, which is the reason that people have secret identities. You know, secret identities feel like they're starting to become a thing of the past, which sucks because secret identities rule. And this is a prime example of why secret identities are important because we have to face the fact that these heroes cannot be with their loved ones 100% of the time if they are committed to being superheroes. And that puts their loved ones in danger if their identities are known. And I'll just go out and say it. It's a tough read. It's a tough read because it does hit so personal because there is really, really bad stuff that happens in the story. This is, I've, I've heard it described as fridging the comic, which is unfortunate and yet really accurate as well. And, you know, I already mentioned it. I love murder mystery stories. This is a straight up Justice League murder mystery. And in that, it becomes a much more intimate story than you would expect from a title that has that kind of tagline. Unfortunately, this book also has really controversial subject matter. There are some serious and horrible things that happen in this book. And if you are sensitive to stuff like that, just brace yourself if you are going to read this comic. But it also features some really interesting conversations and some really interesting concepts that had been brewing in the DC universe and had been kind of gestating for a while, but the darkness behind your favorite heroes is a concept that is not new. It's not, you know, this story didn't invent it, but the idea that following the story, you look at characters like Black Canary, like Zatanna, like Green Arrow, a little bit differently is important and it set the stage for stuff that would come after and in that it's quite possibly one of the most important crises of all of them because of just what this sets up going forward and following this event following the murder mystery the reveal of the killer and the god just absolutely tragic ending of the story um, the aftermath is one of the most 
pivotal and one of the hardest hitting aftermaths of any of the crises on this list. Um, this resulted in the death of both Sue Dibney and Captain Boomerang. This caused the rogues to become radicalized and would lead to their involvement in future stories of much more uh, world-shaking proportions. The Justice League was fractured after finding out all of the shady shit that a previous roster had done. Following this, and due to Batman's mistrust and frustration at the reveal of this betrayal, Batman develops Brother Eye, which leads into the OMAC crisis, which leads into Infinite Crisis. Now, this story leading into a monumental event like Infinite Crisis normally gets people to kind of forget about how important this book is, but when you look back at it and you see the ramifications of why this book exists and the effect that this book had on the wider DCU, it's it it deserves to be on the list. It is a crisis. Um, it's also one of the very first comics that my partner ever read when we were first when we first started dating, which is a hell of a thing to have your partner start off with something like Identity Crisis. Though, it did instill in her a deep love for Ralph and Sue Dibney. So, this book does right by them. Sort of. Kind of. It's bad. Um, the, the story isn't bad. The events that happen in the story are. I'll just say that. Now, does a Flash die in Identity Crisis? No. But a rogue does, which kind of fits the prompt, right? Captain Boomerang does bite it in this story. Unfortunate, but also one of the most heartbreaking and best parts of this story. I forgot to mention also, in the aftermath, due to the events surrounding Captain Boomerang's death, uh, this leads to Tim Drake being officially adopted by Bruce Wayne, which is nice and wholesome. I enjoy it. But again, Identity Crisis, it's a tough read. It's a tough recommendation, which is, you know, always frustrating when you want to, you know, recommend good stories to people. But it is what it is. It's at number seven. Not the worst crisis, but there are definitely best cri better crises up ahead, including number six, Zero Hour, A Crisis in Time. From 1994, 10 years before Identity Crisis, this is written by Dan Jurgens with art by both Dan Jurgens and Jerry Ordway. This is the forgotten crisis, because not everyone remembers that this is considered a crisis. Zero Hour's full title is Zero Hour, A Crisis in Time. Now, to put things into perspective for you folks, I was two years old when this story came out, so I wasn't reading this when it came out. But I do have a love for all of the characters involved in here because this is the 90s, one of my favorite periods in DC Comics. Now, the synopsis goes like this. When all of his family and friends were killed by the attack of a supervillain, the once heroic Green Lantern went insane and became the immensely powerful Parallax. Hoping to save his loved ones, the mad Hal Jordan decided to recreate the universe by unraveling time. Now, as realities and timelines converge, dinosaurs walk the earth again, deceased heroes are resurrected, and half the population has suddenly vanished. 
with Parallax on the verge of success, Superman, Batman, Robin, Flash, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, and the rest of the world's heroes must find a way to stop their former comrade or cease to be as all existence ends. And again, I already said, this is a sentimental favorite of mine. This was a period of time that I look to fondly. I love 90s DC Comics, even though most of it's batshit insane. And this was officially, and in publication, the first sequel to Crisis on Infinite Earths. This was also the conclusion of the Parallax story started in Emerald Twilight and the culmination of the darker direction that the DCU had been in. Prior to this, we got the death of Superman, we got Nightfall, we got... As I said, Emerald Twilight, we got the reign of the Superman, the return of Superman, and the status quo of the DC Universe had gotten darker. It had become something that back in the 60s and the hip and swinging times of the Silver Age would have been unthinkable. And this story serves to be the climax of that darker direction. It involved the entire DCU, which any good crisis should, and it was created very similarly to Crisis on Infinite Earths to clean up a lot of the continuity, to specifically deal with alternate timelines in the way that the first crisis dealt with alternate universes. Now, the story is not especially great. Uh, it has a very messy narrative. Um, shifting focus from Parallax to villain Extant isn't really great. Extant isn't a super compelling villain. Um, it's just, it's, it's, it's fine. Wave Rider is fine. Uh, they do the JSA super dirty in this story too. They had just come back and it's like, okay, now we're going to age you all up so that you're old people again to fit in with our timeline of events. Um, there are, speaking of timeline, just a dozen of confusing timeline shenanigans. However, there's also a at least a dozen fun timeline shenanigans. We see to get we see Robins of two generations get to team up, which is really, really fun. Uh, we get to see multiple heroes who had been gone or were in another timeline meeting up with each other. It's just everything that you would want in a DC line-wide shattering event, which I really enjoy. And it gives us the conclusion to Hal Jordan's fall from grace, which means, ladies and gentlemen, this is during the prime era of Kyle Rayner Green Lantern, which you know I have to put it up above some of these other points just because Kyle Rayner's my boy. We all know this. We're all aware. Now, in the aftermath of this event, this also has one of the absolute coolest, just freaking coolest uh, cover and visual gags where the covers become slowly uh, the white light begins to overtake every image, which is really cool. And they count down to zero. It's, it's fun. It's really good. I love it. Um, but in the aftermath of the story, we did see the death of Hal Jordan. Parallax is killed at the end of this story. I won't say by who, because it is chef's kiss. Uh, we got to see many backstories cleaned up in the overall timeline of this new Earth DC universe cleaned up as well. This was also a soft reboot to the timeline because we got to see, oh, well, now we've got the younger 
heroes and the JSA now happened before. So now they're all old people. So like I said, cleaning up a lot of stuff. And it also officially rebooted the Legion of Superheroes, which from here, the timeline only gets messier, folks. So great job. Great job doing that soft reboot. Now, does a Flash die in Zero Hour, A Crisis in Time? No. The first time that we can say officially a Flash does not die in A Crisis. And it took us all the way to number six, which I think is impressive. Now, it's, again, a messy story. It's not one of the best. It's not a story that you can just hand to anybody, which, I mean, you really shouldn't be handing crises to just random people. But it's a story that, again, is a sentimental favorite, so it was going to be higher up, but it is, unfortunately, locked out of the top five. Getting into the top five, we've got Dark Knight's Metal from 2017, written by Scott Snyder, art by Greg Capullo, Jonathan Clapion, and FCO Placencia. This is the quintessential modern crisis. And until Dark Crisis takes that spot, this is what I will look towards to give people when they ask for what is a crisis in modern DC. Now, the synopsis goes like this. The Dark Knight has uncovered one of the lost mysteries of the universe, one that could destroy the very fabric of the DC universe. The dark corners of reality that have never been seen till now. The dark multiverse is revealed in all its devastating danger. A team of twisted, evil versions of Batman, hell-bent on destroying the DC universe. With appearances from heroes, villains, and faces long forgotten, Dark Knight's metal will examine every choice a hero doesn't take, and every path they don't walk, and open up worlds that are forged by nightmares. Now, in the way that I said that Dark Knight's death metal is the worst Snyder Capullo story, Dark Knight's metal is Snyder and Capullo's metal masterpiece. Um, this story is because of who they are as a team, as much a Batman event as a crisis, but it does involve the entire DCU and gives us the debut of the modern Dark Multiverse, bringing in Barbatos and bringing in the Dark Knights. Uh, this is Batman versus the world, essentially, bringing in multiple different alternate Batman, including my two favorites out of all of them. Red Death, which I think is a lot of people's favorite, and Dawnbreaker, which I absolutely love. I just, I love the image of the sickly-looking Batman-Green Lantern hybrid who just goes blackout and just all light is sucked out of the room. It's so cool! Um, though I will give a, a quick shout-out to the Merciless for uh, good brother Malcolm Russell Nelson, because he loves the Merciless. And this book also had some amazing tie-ins. It was a great event that featured a really solid main book while also featuring great tie-ins in all of the books that came around it. This was also the first big Rebirth event. And this was coming out of the events of, you know, DC Rebirth, out of The Button, out of the ramp-up towards Doomsday Clock. 
this was our placeholder. This was the event that people look to. And I think because of how much people dislike Doomsday Clock, it helps to kind of raise the stock of this story. Um, and I will spoil it as much as I want to call it one. Doomsday Clock is not a crisis. I, I stand by that it should be, but it's not. It's it's just not. There's too many off uh, off continuity stuff for it to be considered a crisis because all all the crises have to be in the main DCU. It's just a fact. That's what has to happen. But um, I did really enjoy this event for what it was. It gave us some great battles, some really cool moments where we got to see the both debut of these Dark Knights as well as most of their deaths. And unfortunately, it gave birth to the Batman Who Laughs, which is a huge mark against it for me and why it sank all the way to number five. However, in the aftermath of Dark Knight's Metal, we got to further explore the Dark Multiverse, which is really cool, giving us a darker what-if if you will. Uh, we also got the new Age of Heroes, bringing in new heroes that were more or less marketed to be like, these are going to be your new heroes that are going to last the next 40 years. Spoiler alert, they did not. Uh, including Damage, New Challengers, Silencer, and The Terrifics, among others. Um, some of those books were good. Some of them were not good. And this also led into New Justice and The Year of the Villain. Now, this story, of course, planted the seeds for death metal down the line because both carrying across the creative team as well as setting up for what was going to happen next, obviously it would. You're the villain, fun time, really good stuff. New Justice, a little bit heady, and it led into the Scott Snyder uh, Justice League book, which was fine. And <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, now, does a Flash die in Dark Knight's Metal? No. Okay, kind of. Kind of. If we count the Red Death, because Red Death is a Flash who was bonded to Batman. This is Batman and Barry Allen sharing one body, one power set. And at a certain point, the Red Death is inverted. So Barry Allen is the main personality turning his red armor gold. Coolest visual gag I've ever seen in this story. And then he explodes and he dies. So technically, a Flash does die in this crisis. Now, we go to number four, which I think it might be controversial having it this low on the list, but it is Final Crisis from 2008. Written by Grant Morrison with art by J.G. Jones, Doug Monkey, Carlos Pacheco, and Marco Rudy. And that is an all-star lineup of artists, let me tell you. Now, this is the most complicated crisis. I said just a bit ago that you should never just hand a crisis book to a new reader, and you should absolutely never give Final Crisis to a new reader. Ever, ever, ever. They have to do homework, which is unfortunate, but also super satisfying when you actually do the work to read the stuff that you need to read for this. Now, the synopsis goes like this. What happens when evil wins? That's the devastating question Superman, Batman, the Justice League, and every other super being in the DC Universe must face when Darkseid and his otherworldly legion of followers actually win the war between light and dark. Now, this is Grant Morrison's endgame. This is the culmination of their pretty much entire tenure in DC up to this point. 
Grant Morrison, when they entered into DC, they initially pitched Hypercrisis. We don't know exactly what that story would entail, but we do know that after it was shelved, they included a lot of the DNA into their stories of Seven Soldiers, 52, All-Star Superman, and of course, Final Crisis. Now, they began developing Final Crisis during their run on Batman, setting the stage for it, little pieces here and there, and this story serves as the end of the New Gods, more or less, following the events of Seven Soldiers, and also is Darkseid's final push for the Earth and for the DC Universe as a whole. This is Darkseid finally acquiring the anti-life equation and just wreaking havoc on everyone and everything he can see. Now, I said this is a really complicated story because it is, but... If ever an event was worthy of the crisis title, this book is. It involves the entire DCU, and I do mean the entire DCU. We're talking this story spans across timelines, this story spans across ages, this story spans across universes, and we've got stories happening today. We've got stories happening to the Legion of Superheroes. They initially pitched that this would be the moment where we check in on other universes who are also going through crises at a time. And I would just, I would love to see something like that. Like a true crisis that happens to be happening at the same time as crises on other Earths. Give it some incursion, secret wars, time runs out DNA, and I would love that. And I think, obviously, if anyone was going to pull that off, Grant Morrison could. They can literally do anything they want. Now... This story is very high concept and has kind of a messy execution. For me, this is the most Grant Morrison story of their big two work. And I'm sure people can look to stuff like Doom Patrol. But I, for my money, this is the book that I, at certain times, having to reread this, I'm like, wait, okay, Hold on, let me go back a couple pages. What happened? There is a moment where a character sings their adversary to death. And I... There are no words to accurately describe how Grant Morrison this book is, both in a good way and a bad way. Um, it is very steeped in references and referential lore. So if you're not all up on that, I would wait on this before you get more involved. Um, check out their other books. Check out their JLA run. Check out their Batman run. Check out, definitely check out Seven Soldiers and 52. Um, but they they know how to craft a long-term story, very much in the same way that Jonathan Hickman does on the Marvel side. But in the aftermath of Final Crisis, we got a lot of stuff happen. Uh, this was the quote-unquote death of Batman, which led to Dick Grayson becoming Batman and ushering in the golden age of Batman stories that lasted far too short. Did not last long enough. Uh, we did, however, see the reuniting of the Flash family, which was heartwarming and amazing, and I loved it. Uh, we also, alongside that, got to see the revival of Connor Kent and Bart Allen, both characters who had died in previous stories and were brought back specifically to deal with Superboy Prime in the future, which I love. And this story set the stage for everything that was going to come next. This story led into Blackest Night, which led into Flashpoint. The story was ultimately the 
story that brought back Barry Allen, which leads into pretty much everything that's happened since. And if you want to trace back to an event that brought us narratively to where we are right now in the DC Universe and Dark Crisis, you look to Final Crisis. This is where Barry Allen came back. And Barry Allen has done nothing but ruin things ever since. And he has said that himself. Don't come at me, Barry Stans. Um, This story is incredible. It feels like a fitting conclusion to the crisis saga but it wasn't the final crisis which is why it does slide down a little bit on the list for me now does a flash die in final crisis no the opposite in fact two flashes come back from the dead that being barry allen and bart allen bart allen taking up the mantle of kid flash i i just I love that Grant Morrison had to subvert the crises prompt in every single way possible, including bringing back flashes instead of killing them. I love it. Now, we're heading into the home stretch here. Top three. These are the heavy hitters. These are the ones that you can literally give to people and let them know this is what a crisis should be. At number three, this is very, oh, this is tough. At number three, I have Flashpoint from 2011. Written by Jeff Johns, art by Andy Kuber. This is what I call the good intentions crisis. Synopsis goes like this. When Barry Allen wakes at his desk, he discovers the world has changed. Family is alive, loved ones are strangers, and close friends are different, gone, or worse. It's a world on the brink of a cataclysmic war, but where are Earth's greatest heroes to stop it? It's a place where America's last hope is Cyborg, who hopes to gather the forces of the Outsider, the Secret Seven, Captain Thunder, Citizen Cold, and other new and familiar yet altered faces. It's a world that could be running out of time if the Flash can't find the villain who altered the timeline. Now, this is the crisis that did the most damage to the DCU. We talk about crises as this concept of changing the course of the DC universe, you know, world and universe and multiverse ending stakes. This one did the most damage to the long-term DCU. And it's because it wasn't supposed to be a crisis. The reason that I call this the good intentions crisis isn't just because of Barry Allen instigating this whole thing. It's because this just began as a Flash story. Jeff Johns had just brought Barry Allen back in Flash Rebirth and was getting ready to tell more stories and had this really cool altered story where it was just going to run in the Flash main line where something happened. Barry Allen wakes up in this new world. He goes back, clean as a whistle. It's wrapped up with a bow. We go back to the status quo. But editorial mandated that Flashpoint be the inciting incident to reboot the the DCU, to turn it into something else, something new. Now, this is looked at as a turning point for DC Comics. I think a lot of people following Final Crisis had a lot of goodwill, myself included. I loved the Justice League lineup here with Dick Grayson leading the team as Batman. You had characters like Donna Troy, and Monel on the Justice League, the best Justice League lineup. You can fight me on it, you'll lose because I have the heaviest hitters. But 
the DC universe was forever changed because of this story. And it caused a lot of longtime readers to check out of DC Comics and some out of comics as a whole. Because DC had had a long-term, long-running continuity, much like Marvel. Yes, it had been soft-rebooted here and there, certain characters were retconned, but reality had never been totally rebooted. Not like Flashpoint did to DC. And this is a story that people look back as one of the most polarizing comics in DC's history because of all the damage that it did to not just characters, but also creative teams, the creative directions of certain characters. And that being said, it's also the most interesting story on paper. You look at the concept, you look at the prompt of it, it involves the entire DCU, it's an alternate timeline story, it's a detective story with world with a world-ending backdrop. And for my money, and I bag on Barry Allen all the time because he deserves it, this is one of, if not the best, Barry Allen stories. It's personal, it has high stakes, it deals with Barry's history, and it ultimately shows why he is a hero and why he is the Flash. And the story also has a satisfying as hell conclusion. If literally this story ended and then we went back to the status quo, you don't have to change anything about this story. Anything. Literally anything. Costume designs changed. Yeah, big whoop, whatever. They can go back with a different artist. But if you look at this just as a story, and I think that's what happened initially with the uh, with the DC animated movie universe, or the Takamu, but this story is fantastic. And even though I've bagged on this a lot, and a lot of people have bagged on this a lot, um, it's a great story if you just look at it as a Flash story. It's also got some wonderful tie-ins. This is before everyone got burned out on Thomas Wayne Batman, back when the concept was really cool. Uh, we got to see a Superman who was captured immediately by the U.S. government as a baby. You want to tell me, oh, you know, Man of Steel is the realistic Superman or whatever. It's like, no, this is the realistic Superman. And it sucks. And there's a reason it sucks. But... It's a great story, great tie-ins, great world-ending stakes, and it all comes down to Flash and his greatest enemy. Is that Eobard Thawne? Is it himself? We'll have to read the story to find out. But in the aftermath of Flashpoint, we, of course, got the new 52. This also retroactively, through some really interesting retcons, led us to Doomsday Clock, the Knot Crisis, and... It caused a lot of people to get really interested in DC. I will say that as many readers dropped off, it brought in a lot of new readers, which ultimately made it more or less a success. Uh, it's been given adaptations out the wazoo from an animated movie to adapting it in the Flash TV show to everyone and their mother trying to do a new Flashpoint. The, the story is one of those instant classics that you can look to in DC's long history. Uh, this also set the stage for the next crisis to happen because this new reality was younger. This new reality was less experienced, and this new reality opened the door for the terrible things that we would see going forward. Now, 
Does a flash die in this story? Yes, a reverse flash. <laughs> I know it's a technicality, but he is called the reverse flash, so he dies. It's a crisis. What more do you want from me? Now, the top two is very difficult. Top two is very difficult to put together, and it is... I went back and forth a couple times on this, putting these top two. If you know the history of the DC Universe, you know what two are going to be at the top. But ultimately, rereading both of these stories, at the number two spot, I have Crisis on Infinite Earths from 1985, written by Marv Wolfman, art by George Perez. Rest in peace, George Perez. This was the first big crisis. Synopsis goes like this. A mysterious being known as the Anti-Monitor has begun a crusade across time to bring about the end of all existence. As alternate Earths are systematically destroyed, the Monitor quickly assembles a team of superheroes from across time and space to battle his counterpart and stop the destruction. DC's greatest heroes, including Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, and Aquaman assemble to stop the menace, but as they watch both the Flash and Supergirl die in battle, they begin to wonder if even all the heroes in the world can stop this destructive force. Now, this is obviously the one everyone talks about. This is the crisis that started it all. This broke new ground for DC, involved the entire DCU, and served as the end of an era and the beginning of a new one. Crisis on Infinite Earths is seminal comic storytelling. This is a story that you can give to people and say this is the height of what DC storytelling can be. Yes, it is a little dated. Just how it is. However, it is still a beautiful story that has gotten several different adaptations, one of which that I think is good and you all are just mean. And <laughs> it is the story that launched a million events. Now, it's always debated, did this come first, did Secret Wars come first, this came first. Both in conception, both in its release. Crisis on Infinite Earths is the first big line-wide crossover in comic books. And it absolutely deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. The Mount Rushmore of comic book stories. Maybe someday I'll do that. Maybe someday I'll do the Mount Rushmore of comic book events. But for now, it is a story that no other event would exist without. And it changed the status quo of the DC line up to this point. It destroyed the multiverse, killed off prominent characters, and created a brand new history. We know the terms pre-crisis and post-crisis because of this story. This was the first soft reboot to the DC universe. And yes, it wasn't as drastic as Flashpoint, but it still was a story that fundamentally changed characters and fundamentally shifted the direction of the DC universe. And it also was just a damn good story about heroism in the face of ultimate annihilation. And it is a story that everyone should go back and reread, if not just because Dark Crisis is coming up, but because of that gorgeous George Perez art. It is haunting to kind of go back and, you know, reread it after the passing of George Perez. Um, 
you know, it's, it's, you know, I, I look back on stories like this and, you know, his, his teen, his new teen Titans also with Marvel Wolfman. And you kind of forget just how transcendent and how ahead of his time George Perez was in this moment and at this period of time in comic books it's it 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 hits harder reading this um and if you take anything out of this spot in the list um go read a George Perez comic doesn't matter which one today after listening this during listening this if you can multitask go read a George Perez comic you owe it to yourself to do that but in the aftermath of Crisis on Infinite Earths, we got a lot of stuff that happened. Uh, this was a soft reboot for DC for the DCU, as I mentioned before. Wally West becomes the Flash. The DCU becomes a bit more crowded with the destruction of multiple Earths, now creating this new Earth, where not only the Justice League from Earth 1, but now we've got the JSA from Earth 2, the Shazam family from Earth 5. We've got all kinds of characters that shouldn't be on this Earth now on this Earth, and there's a lot of fun stuff that has to do with that. Um, and it set the standard for large-scale events going forward. I said it before, every large-scale comic book event that has happened has DNA from Crisis on Infinite Earths, and it absolutely deserves to be in the top two for that reason alone. Um, and I mentioned George Perez earlier, and I just want to highlight something that I thought was uh, really interesting. George Perez did an interview in 1994 talking about this for the 10th anniversary of Christ on Infinite Earths. And there was an idea that the Superman of Earth-1 would die in Crisis on Infinite Earths. It wasn't going to be Supergirl, it was going to be Superman. And the Superman of Earth-2 now seeing that all of his friends were mostly gone in the aftermath of Christ on Infinite Earths, and now he was surrounded by these younger heroes, would basically say, well, I guess I don't need this anymore. And he'd rub off this old person makeup and get out the white hair dye from the temples, and he would be just like classic Superman. And it would be revealed that he stopped aging in the 1940s, and he would just do what he does and just be the new Superman of this earth. And I think that's such a batshit amazing idea. I'm kind of mad they didn't do it. You know, they, they would have pitched it as the return of the original superhero, which I love. And never mind that he is so far in a way out of the, out of the realm of possibility and when it comes to his power set compared to everybody else but it would have been really cool to continue that story and ultimately they did something like this during rebirth with the death of the new 52 superman and the return of the post-crisis superman so george perez's you know idea did did come come true which i kind of love it was just you know a couple decades later but Ultimately, the biggest question out of this story, does a Flash die in Crisis on Infinite Earths? Yes. Unequivocally, no technicalities, yes. Barry Allen dies in this story. Everyone knows this. I don't think it's a spoiler. It's 
the whole start of this idea that a Flash has to die in every crisis or has to be fundamentally changed in every crisis. And Barry Allen was never as important as he was when he died saving the multiverse. I think maybe you can argue him being important when it or his importance to the wider DCU with Flashpoint, but this was Barry Allen's finest hour, bar none. Which brings us inevitably to my number one, the one that you've been waiting for, Infinite Crisis from 2005, written by Jeff Johns with art by Phil Jimenez, George Perez, Ivan Reyes, and Jerry Ordway. This was my first crisis. You never forget your first. I read this as a young comic book fan before even knowing what Crisis on Infinite Earths was. And boy, did I have some questions coming out of this. But synopsis goes like this. OMAC robots are rampaging. Magic is dying. Villains are uniting. And a war is raging in space. And in the middle of it all, a critical moment has divided Earth's three greatest heroes. Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. It's the DCU's darkest day, and long-lost heroes from the past have returned to make things right in the universe, at any cost. Heroes will live, heroes will die, and the DCU will never be the same again. This, for me, is the gold standard of crises in the DC universe. It involved the entire DCU, the consequences of the events that transpire in the story matter. This is a true sequel to Crisis on Infinite Earths. And overall, it's just a great story. Like, it is what I look to for a big DC event. Like, when you when I think Marvel crossover events, instantly 2015 Secret Wars. It's no, I, I don't even have to think about it. When I think about DC events, Infinite Crisis. Split 10 years apart, these two stories still hit the same for me as they did when I first read each of them. And it's wonderful because, as the synopsis alluded to, this is the perfect crisis at the worst time for the DC universe. The Trinity is in shambles. They're dealing with the events of Identity Crisis, where nobody is safe. Batman has established Brother I, causing all of the OMAC nonsense. Wonder Woman has just publicly killed Maxwell Lord after he killed Blue Beetle and tried to mind control Superman into almost killing Wonder Woman. So none of these three characters are on the same page. And on top of that, Martian Manhunter is killed. Or so they think. But they do know one thing. The Watchtower, the JLA Watchtower, is in shambles. It has been destroyed, and they don't know why. Now, this crisis also was during some recent deaths and rebirths. Um, I believe uh, Green Lantern rebirth was happening either right before this or right after this. And we were dealing with the fallout of, like I said, the Maxwell Lord death, shifting public perception of Diana and challenging the no-kill rule of the DC universe, um, the deaths of Sue Dibney, the 
ridiculous stuff that's happening in literally every other book that's going on at this point. Villains are uniting. The rogues, as I said in the entry about Identity Crisis, have been radicalized. The Secret Society is gaining strength. We've got Secret Six. We've got um, all of this stuff happening. And on top of all that, off in space, the Ran-Thanagar War. Ah, there's too many things going on right now, so of course a crisis has to happen. Now, this story also has direct ramifications from Crisis on Infinite Earths. Characters who pop up there pop up here, and they are not happy in the direction the DC Universe has gone since the events of Crisis on Infinite Earths, and they are going to do something about it. This is where we get some major deaths. This is where we get some major returns. This is where we get some characters stepping up and some characters stepping down. And in the aftermath of this universe-shattering events, we got some of the best superhero stories that I've ever read. One year later is how every event comic should follow up. If you have a big line-wide crossover event, you need to do something like a one year later, where all of a sudden, whoa, it's a year after this event, everyone is in very different places, and you need to play catch-up. I love it. We saw that the Titans were disassembled due to the death of Connor Kent Superboy during this event. Heartbreaking. Uh, Superboy Prime takes the stage during this event, and plants the seeds for everything that's going to come after with that character. Bart Allen becomes the Flash in the absence of Wally West, who finishes up his tenure, his long tenure, as the Flash in this story. And of course, we get 52, one of the greatest DC stories ever told. Now, that's a lot. This story has a lot going on in it. This story has a lot going on around it, and it perfectly balances everything. It doesn't feel too overstuffed. The stuff that does happen, you can trace a line. It's I, I'm, I just love it. I love this crisis. It is my gold standard. It is my perfect crisis. I would not change a single thing about it, except maybe involve more Captain Boomerang. I don't know. But he was dead at this point, so what can you do? Now, the question here, does a Flash die in an infinite crisis? No. Well, kind no. No, he doesn't. Wally West finishes up his career as the Flash for now, and he is taken off the board, but he does not die. If you want to count that as the Flash dying because it does pass to Bart, you can, and I won't argue with you, because in every major crisis event... A, flat, a new Flash is born, essentially. But Wally West does not die in the story. So, even though it's got all these other things going for it, it is not the... It, it doesn't check every single box of a crisis, the standard that was set. But, again, sentimental favorite. It was my first crisis. I will always hold that story near and dear to my heart. And it's a story that gives a big middle finger to everyone who wanted to kill Nightwing. You know who you are. So, I love that story to death. I think it's one of the best DC stories and events ever told. And that is why it is at the top of my best crises list so we've ranked them 
We've ranked him from 10 to 1, from worst to best, some great stories, some not-so-great stories. And I'm hoping that as we are on the eve of Dark Crisis number 1, that Dark Crisis is going to be... One of the greats. I'm hoping for top five. I would settle for a top six, personally. But who knows? This story might vault its way into the best crisis. It might vault its way into the best modern crisis. The only thing that I do know when it comes to Dark Crisis and the future of the DC Universe is that worlds will live, worlds will die, and the DC Universe will never be the same. Welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I chat you up about all the comics you should be picking up this week, whether it's at your local comic shop, on Comixology, or however you get your comics. These are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. But before we get into this week's books, we got to take a look back at last week's books with the Geek Explained Pick of the Week of last week. And surprisingly enough, I chose Strange Number Three, written by Jed McKay with art by Marcel. Ferreira. I love this book. I did not expect, I thought I was going to like it, but I did not expect to love this book. And this issue specifically was so dope. Clea Strange laying down the law against characters like the Rose is not something that I knew I needed, but it's everything I wanted. I do have to give a quick little special shout out to Firepower number 21. A super close, it was like razor thin between these two books. Uh, Firepower is firing on all cylinders, pardon the pun, right now. And you should be picking up both that book and this book every single time they come out. So that's last week's books. This week, I've got nine books for you to check out. We're jumping up. We're jumping up. There are nine books and I feel like you should pick up almost all of them. I think you should pick all of them up, but there are obviously ones that I'm going to put a little bit more focus on, but let's go ahead and dive into the list. Starting off with Batman number 124. This is written by Joshua Williamson and G. Willow Wilson with art by Howard Porter and Danny. And this is the final stop before the Chip Zdarsky, uh, Jorge Jimenez era of Batman begins. And so this is going to be just a quick, I think, one shot for both the main and backup stories. But I'm excited about it. Let's go ahead and dive into this synopsis. In the aftermath of the Shadow War, Batman has returned to Gotham. But when he hears word of strange developments in Badnesia, he's forced to question, has Abyss returned? Or has a new hero been born in the dark? And in the backup, Poison Ivy uncovers the troubling ramifications of the Gardener and Harley Quinn's actions during Fear State. In this prologue to Poison Ivy, drawn by Danny and written by Poison Ivy series writer G. Willow Wilson. So it's always really exciting to see G. Willow Wilson's name pop up. I love everything I've ever read that's been written by her so i'm excited for this and again this is kind of this is the swan song for the joshua williamson era short but sweet i think exactly as long as it needed to be and i'm just ready for this chip zadarsky era to begin so next up in a double bat feature we have batman killing time number four this is written by tom king with art by david marquez 
You know how much I've been praising this book. This is number four of six. We are heading into the home stretch of this, and I, I really dig it. I really do. I didn't think I was going to love this book. This is this is another one, just like Strange, that I knew I was going to like, but I didn't know I was going to love. So uh, let's do this synopsis. Chapter four. That should do it. The bodies are beginning to pile up as the hunt for Catwoman and the Riddler intensifies, and they finally meet face-to-face with their shocking buyer. Batman and the Mysterious Help join forces in what will go down as one of the more memorable team-ups. So the Help rules. <laughs> I have really dug seeing this new character in action in this book, and I'm kind of sad that, I mean, he's probably going to die at the end of this, right? Like, this is an early Batman book. Uh, the Help hasn't been referenced or talked about since, so unless something drastic happens, expect the help not to make it out of the series, but I'm enjoying the ride while we are on it. Next up, we have Aquaman, Andromeda number one. This is written by Rom V with art by Christian Ward, and I'm in. I'm excited for an Aquaman book. I never thought I'd see the day. <laughs> But this book sounds really cool. It's a new Black Label book, and it is, from what we understand, an Aquaman undersea horror book. So let's dive into the synopsis and find out what this book's all about. Deep in the Pacific Ocean, at the farthest possible distance from any land, sits Point Nemo, the spaceship Graveyard. Since the dawn of the space race, the nations of the world have sent their crafts there on splashdown to sink beneath the silent seas. But there is something else at Point Nemo, a structure never made by human hands, and that structure seems to be waking up. The crew of the experimental submarine Andromeda, powered by a mysterious black hole drive, have been chosen to investigate this mystery, but they aren't the only ones pursuing it. Anything of value beneath the ocean is of value to the master pirate Black Manta, and anything that attracts Black Manta attracts Arthur Curry, his lifelong foe, the Aquaman. But heaven help them all when the doors of the mystery at Point Nemo swing wide to admit them. Bringing us, bringing a bracing cosmic horror sensibility to the world of Aquaman, rising superstars Rom V and Christian Ward team up to put Arthur Curry through an exercise in psychological horror that could break the will of even a king. That sounds dope as hell. Like, for some reason, it's giving me weirdly enough Cloverfield vibes, and I dig the shit out of that. Aquaman mixed with Cloverfield, count me in. I'm definitely going to be checking this out, and I think you should too. Another big old number one we've got is Multiversity Teen Justice number one. This is written by Ivan Cohen with art by uh, Marco Faila and also written by Danny Lore. And this is our first big tie-in to Dark Crisis. And I have been hotly anticipating this. This is also technically, I guess, a sequel to Multiversity since it has the Multiversity branding. But we are going to be checking in on a different Earth for this one. I believe it's Earth 11, where we're getting the gender-swapped versions of Young Justice. And now they are Teen Justice. So Teen Titans, Young Justice, boom. You got one of the coolest looking teams that I've seen in quite some time. So let's dive into the synopsis. Will to Survive Part 1. New Girl in Town. 
Kid Quick, the future state Flash, and their fellow heroes Supergirl, Robin, Aquagirl, Clary and the Witch Girl, and Troy take center stage in a miniseries that rocks Earth-11 to its core. Co-writers Ivan Cohen and Danny Lore join rising star artist Marco Faila for the incredible debut issue, which begins with an attack by the Hive and ends in the Church of Blood. What is Sister Blood's true mission among the lost souls of New York City? Can teen justice get through their growing pains fast enough to learn the answer in time to stop it? And what role will the mysterious Raven, the brooding hero who has refused to join the team in the past, play in the ultimate battle? The secrets of Earth-11's newest heroes and villains unfold in DC's most exciting new team title. So yeah, I'm super excited about this. The gender-swapped versions of these characters. We've got Supergirl, we've got Robin, we've got Aquagirl, Clary Yen, the Witch Girl, and just Troy. Troy! Uh, I'm really excited to get more of Jesse Chambers, and I'm really excited to see what this team is all about. We're also, from that uh, synopsis, getting a gender-swapped Raven, which is really cool. We get Sister Blood. I'm excited about this. I'm really... This is kind of the stuff that I'm looking for in my multiversity books. I hope we get more multiversity looks looks into other uh, other Earths, because an event like Dark Crisis would be obviously the perfect time to do this with the multiversal implications and all the stuff that the term crisis brings to it. I, I feel like I've said the word crisis a lot in this episode, but I'm very excited to pick this up. We also have DC Pride 2022 number one. This is written by a bunch of people. Including Devin Grayson, Ivan Cohen, Tini Howard, Grade Lockard, Alyssa Wong, Stephanie Phillips, Danny Lore, Stephanie Williams, Jadzia Axelrod, Danny Fernandez, Kevin Conroy, and Travis Moore, with art by Travis Moore, uh, Ted Brandt and Rose Stein, Nicole Maines, Laverne Kidzierski, I'm so sorry if I'm mispronouncing these, I really apologize, uh, W. Scott Forbes, Jay Bone, P. Craig Russell, Lynn Yoshi, J.J. Kirby, Megan Hetrick, Nick Robles, Brittany L. Williams, Jess Taylor, Evan Cagle, Zoe, Zoe Thorogood, Samantha Dodge, Julo Macaioni, mm, Rye Hickman. Whew, that's a lot of names. Um, but yeah, we are seeing some awesome, awesome stories coming out of this. Lots of characters that I'm really excited about. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. All right, check out the titles for this. Super Pride, Confessions, Think of Me, Up at Bat, a world kept just for me. The gumshoe in green. Public display of electromagnetism. Bats in the cradle. Special delivery. The hunt. Are you ready for this? And finding Batman. DC's 2022 celebration kicks off with more stories, more characters, and more pride than ever before. This anthology features 13 all-new stories, spotlighting LGBTQIA plus fan favorites new and old, including John Kent Superman, Nubia, Tim Drake Robin, Kid Quick, Aquaman Jackson Hyde, Joe Mullane Green Lantern, Alyssa Yeo, The Ray, Harley Quinn, Poison Ivy, Batman, and... Batwoman, and more. This special also includes a multiversity teen justice kickoff story spotlighting Kid Quick and written by the miniseries team, an introduction by activist, actress, and real-life superhero Nicole Maines that will include a teaser for her upcoming Dreamer project. Yes! Dreamer! Very excited to see all of the characters, all of the stories. This is going to be a hell of a 
DC Pride Anthology. I cannot wait to pick this up. Next up to bat, we have The Amazing Spider-Man number three. This is written by Zeb Wells with art by John Romita Jr. And I talked about it, I think, last week. I did not expect to love this book. I was fully committed to not liking this book, in fact. But it becoming a tombstone book with Spider-Man showing up every so often has turned me completely 180 on this. I'm very excited to pick this up. And synopsis goes like this. I know that this is just number three, but did you notice that it's... Legacy number 897? That means something big is right around the corner. There are things you don't know about Tombstone. Neither you nor Spider-Man will ever forget them. I love how all of the synopses are playing with the reader. None of these synopses so far <laughs> have directly gone into what the book is about. There was a bunch of backlash with number two about Oh, the cover doesn't match what's going on inside. Like, that has never happened before in a comic book. But I've been really enjoying it so far. I was somewhat interested after number one. I am fully committed after number two, and I'm hoping that number three ups that commitment to a full-blown love affair. So we'll just have to see. Next up, we have Dark Knights of Steel number seven. This is written by Tom Taylor with art by Nathan Gooden. And this book has been... Wonderful. This is issue number 7 of 12, and things are ramping up very quickly. Let's dive into the synopsis. With three kingdoms on the brink of war, Batman is in hiding, recovering from an attack and a shocking betrayal. But Batman finds he's not the only unfortunate soul to be taken in by his surprise rescuers. Strange, magical youngsters have been given sanctuary alongside the bastard prince Bruce Wayne. Will these teen outcasts change everything Batman believes in? or will they perish at the hands of a demon are we getting shazam kids are we getting some justice league dark stuff are we getting gasp teen titans academy nonsense we'll see i'm really interested to see who pops up here dark knights of steel has been fantastic i cannot wait to pick this up but for me i think probably the two uh, yeah, I would say the two big books of the week for me, the ones I absolutely think you should be picking up, starts off with Ben Riley's Spider-Man number five. This is written by J.M.D. Mateus with art by David Baldion. This is the final part of Ben Riley's Spider-Man, issue five of five, The Humanity Agenda, and I'm really sad about it. <laughs> I'm really sad about it. Uh, I love Ben Riley's Spider-Man. If I haven't made that clear enough already, you should know it by now. And I'm going to reiterate here. I love Ben Riley's Spider-Man. And I've loved this book. Getting a look back into the sensational Spider-Man days. Getting to see Ben working through trauma. And a book that is featured not just on Ben's mental health, but also on him being a superhero at the same time. Who'd have thought that was even possible? But I've been really loving it. I'm sad to see this go, but I'm glad we did get this time with Ben. Let's dive into the synopsis. The Humanity Agenda, Part 5, A Thin Line. Ben must take on the entire Ravencroft Institute for the Criminally Insane. But must he face them all alone, or will an unlikely ally step in? This is one finale you won't want to miss. 
yeah, I know I won't miss it. I hope you don't either. I love this book. Cannot wait to pick it up. But it is also tied with the other big book of the week, which, to the surprise of no one, if you've paid attention at all in this episode, it's Dark Crisis number one. This is written by Joshua Williamson, art by Daniel Sampier. Um, this is the big book. This is DC's big event for the year. Dark Crisis, it is the reason this episode is even here and I am very interested to see how this all goes I've heard nothing but glowing reviews from people who have read this issue and I'm hoping that Dark Crisis is able to get into that top tier of crises when we get into the official rankings when all is said and done let's go through this synopsis chapter one the Justice League is dead Crisis on Infinite Earths. Infinite Crisis. Final Crisis. And now, Dark Crisis. The epic event years in the making is finally here. Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and the rest of the Justice League are dead. The remaining heroes are left to protect the world from an onslaught of violent attacks by DC's greatest villains. Can the legacy heroes step out of the shadows of the classic heroes to form a new Justice League? And will that be enough to stop a darkness greater than anything they've ever faced from destroying everything? Don't miss out on the first issue of the blockbuster event of the summer. So this is part one of seven, and this is going to carry us through the rest of the year. Now, I am cautiously optimistic about this. I like that none of the you know usual heavy hitters from DC are here. It's all going to be about John Kent Superman, Wally West Flash, Nightwing. But I do see characters like Black Adam and Hal Jordan and some other mainstay characters that I kind of wish were more pushed to the background, unless we're going to off Hal Jordan in the first issue, which, you know, I wouldn't be mad about. We'll have to see. I'm excited about this. I'm willing to give this a shot. If anything, I would love for 2022's big events, that being Dark Crisis and Axe, Avengers X-Men Eternals, Judgment Day, to be really good so that we can all say, hey, you know what? Maybe comics events aren't dead just yet, but they are going to have to prove it to us. So that does it for this week's Comics Countdown, a stacked Comics Countdown for this week. To recap, we've got Batman 124, Batman Killing Time number 4, Aquaman Andromeda number 1, Multiversity Teen Justice number 1, DC Pride 2022, The Amazing Spider-Man number 3, Dark Knights of Steel number 7, Ben Riley Spider-Man number 5 of 5, and Dark Crisis number 1. This week is going to be one hell of a reading experience. And that is going to bring us to the wrap-up. If this is your first time joining us on the Geek Explained podcast and you like what I do here, feel free to subscribe to us on the podcasting platform of your choice and give us a rating and review. We drop new episodes every single Wednesday, and honestly, ratings, reviews, and especially subscriptions really does help me out, really helps the podcast out in this weird podcasting algorithm space, raises up our stock, and gets us out and into the orbit of listeners just like you. And if you give us a five-star rating and review on Apple 
podcasts, iTunes, whatever you want to call it, I will read your review here live on the podcast. You can write literally whatever you want. I will be forced to read it. As long as you give me those five stars, the sky is the limit. And you'll be able to join the likes of our Red 13, including Seafire ND, Josh from Panels to Pixels, Matt Draper, Burrito Man 88, Doug from For Every Kind of Geek, Don Swanson, That Guy Brian, Mouth Dork, Dallas Meeks, Amazing Spider Fan, Alok and AZ, Sass, and Jedi Jesse 20. I want to say a huge thank you to these fine folks for their reviews, and I cannot wait to hear yours. If you want to be part of our Geek Explained mailbag, if you have a question for me, you have a message for the podcast, you want a recommendation on something we haven't covered on the podcast, or you just want my thoughts on something specific, you know, we haven't been doing the news segment, so if you want me to chat about something that's going on right now, feel free to email me. Send your emails to geeksplained at gmail.com, put mailbag in the subject header, and I will read it here as part of our Geek Explained mailbag. Also, if you want to keep up to date with the podcast, participate in polls that decide future episodes or maybe you just want to shoot the shit with me on the latest geeky news you can follow us follow geek explained pod that's at geek explained pod on twitter and instagram we recently passed 300 followers on twitter thank you so much to you 300 geeks who are following me along on this journey let's get to 400 let's get to 500 and beyond and onwards and upwards finally every single friday is our final plug here we are doing the Geek Explained Book Club. We just wrapped up the first season of Ultimate Spider-Man, 22 volumes, 133 issues, and some change with annuals and stuff. And this Friday, we're starting something very special. As announced in our last book club episode, this Friday begins the Days of Thunder, as we go through every single issue of every single volume of Jason Aaron's Thor. In the lead up to Thor Love and Thunder, we are going to be chronicling the saga of the Odin Sun and the idea that there must always be a Thor, but there doesn't always have to be just one. So tune in for that every Friday going forward. I'm very excited to be embarking on this journey with my good brothers Malcolm Russell Nelson and Jacob Brown. So tune into that every single Friday. Be there or be square, not a circle. And that does it for this week's episode. Uh, let me know what you thought about my rankings for the crises. I'm very excited about Dark Crisis. As I'm recording this, I haven't read it. I'm very interested to see how this goes. I'm cautiously optimistic, and I'm hoping that it's going to be ranking pretty high in our all-time crisis list. And you know what? We'll probably have to do an updated list down the line. So look forward to that. But as we turn our eyes to next week, we are going to be doing a brand new edition of the Geek Explained Spotlight, as I am going to be finally talking about one of my favorite comics and one of my favorite comic book characters. You know him, you love him, you saw him in a recent MCU movie. We're talking Black Bolt. He has taken the internet by storm. People are loving his appearance in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. And now I'm going to be talking about my personal favorite Black Bolt story, Black Bolt Hard Times by Saladin Ahmed and Christian Ward. Cannot wait. Look forward to that next week. Same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for Geek Explained, this has been Eric Azana. Thank you so much for listening. Everybody stay safe and we will... See you next time.